Go ahead. Okay. In one, two, three. Jazz hands. Jim, jazz hands. <laughs> that might actually be the title of this episode already. Jazz hands. Uh, jazz hands. Uh, jazz hands. Oh, did that? What was is there that? something in my hand? Was there something um, in your hand? So, as I announced last week, this guy showed up. This is the Two Notes Torpedo Captor X. Um, on it, I will read you the labels. It is a reactive load box, a virtual cabinet, an attenuator, and an IR loader. Um, it has a multitude of outputs. We'll talk about how, how they work. You got two XLR outs. This is the output side. Um, the speak, a speaker in with a, with a red plug so you know, hey, make sure your amp goes in there. Yeah. And then you've got this as your cabinet out. And if you don't have anything plugged into this, it's gonna it's gonna default to the internal load anyway. Yep. So there's no like switch for turning on the load box or anything like that. Um, it's USB, also red to indicate you better use a speaker wire. Right. Well, and and for this too, I, they tell you in the manual speakers only. But they figure you're smart enough to figure that one out. Um, MIDI in. So it has a little MIDI in plug for the and it's just you know headphone style MIDI plug and a yep. USB uh, C adapter which they actually used USB C. It does have funky power. It's a 12 volt DC, 200 milliamp um, thing. But I think this can still be powered off of a uh, um, uh, Voodoo Labs pedal power too. So uh, the two plus. But, yeah, you um, can use the 12 volt out um, on that. Yeah, because I think it's I think it's 800 milliamps, 12 12 volt. But yep. um, the front, which is the this is the part I had never seen. Right, like there's all this other stuff on the front. So you have a preset knob which is clickable, and that goes all the way up to six presets. Okay, um, we'll get into what that means here in a second. You have a space knob, you have a voicing knob, you have an output level knob, and you have a headphone jack. Um, there is an attenuator on the back, and it's got three settings. Stadium, home, club. All right, stadium, club, home, rather. Uh, club is loud enough that I can put my amps at 9 o'clock at the house, and it, there, I can play them in here. Wow. Um, and uh, at the lowest setting, it is quiet enough that... Uh, I could probably play at night in here and Jeez. while the kids are sleeping. I mean, it's, you can get your amps dialed really low in volume. Um, and it's only a three-setting attenuator, which a lot of people are like, I want one with a knob so I can control it infinitely. Listen, um, most attenuators don't do that anyway. And the ones that do, it's a compromise. By the time you get down to those settings where you'd actually want that kind of control, it tends to be one of those things where... Um, the tone is so squashed that you're like, this is not really all that important. Now, the ones that do have infinite control, usually what they're doing is you're hitting a reactive load, um, and there's no attenuation there, but it's actually getting reamped by by the power amp inside the device that then pushes out the speaker. So that would be like um, the uh, Fryet power station and the uh, Waza TAE, the tube amp expander. Um, this is not that. So this is just a straight up attenuator and it has an IR loader in it. And that's where it makes it cool. So the original captor was not an IR loader. It was like a red box. Um, it was a more modernized red box. And I have a feeling the reactive load in here is very similar to what's in that. But it's funny because I can see some of the elements here. They actually tell you in the manual, this thing's not completely silent. It's a fan on the back, as you probably saw when it's holding it up. Um, but it, there's a speaker motor in it. So when you're playing it and you're dead silent, 
you're going to hear a little bit of your amp sound coming out of the two notes uh, captor, which is kind of interesting, but it it's super quiet. You can barely hear it. Um, I have used this thing pretty much 100% of the time since I've got it. Um, if I'm plugged into my amp, this guy's in there, and it has made playing tube amps at home possible, Wow, which is saying a lot. And the cool thing about it is, uh, so I've got the Kemper. Actually, the Kemper is in a box, that box right there. It's it's dark. You probably can't see it very well. But that box right there has my Kemper in it right now. Uh, Did you sell it? Yeah. It sold yesterday. As I was going into uh, Good Time Music to put some money down on the layway for that cabinet right there. Nice. Um, and I didn't end up putting money on it because as I got out of my car, it sold. And I said, okay. So I went in and I bought my cabinet. I brought it home. It's now part of the Tower of Power, which just seems to be growing infinitely higher. Uh, I have a problem, um, and it will be addressed someday. But right now, I, it's a good problem to have. I have too many cabinets. I have three cabinets of one head. So just think about that for a minute. Let that sink in for a minute. Um, I don't know if it's a good problem to have or not. But anyway, uh, there will be more coming. Uh, I've been doing a lot of soul searching about what I want to get as another amp, but um, I think I've already cracked that. So it's uh, just a matter of time at this point. Anyway, uh, Captor X. So what makes this thing really cool? Yes, it's an IR loader, right? Like everyone's like, oh yeah, IR loader, IR loader. Listen, IRs are only tip of the iceberg because this thing has its own virtual cabinets, which are basically IRs, but they're in a format where you can actually switch microphones and you can change the placement of the microphone and you can change the volume level there is built-in reverb in this guy and it's studio quality reverb it's good stuff um and there's like two there's studio a and studio b and i don't know exactly what studios they're based on but i've seen pictures and i'm like i know that studio i just don't know the name of it um and there's you know hall reverb plate reverb you know you name it there's i think there's six presets for different uh different styles of reverb and then of course the you know, adjustment parameters for each. There is a doubler in here, a stereo doubler, um, because this thing is stereo, which is what something I did not know. So when you go to front of house with this guy, you can use the left and right out, and you can use stereo reverb out from your cabinet on stage, um, even if you have a mono cab, right? And you can use um, the doubler, and you can have, like, a, a, a realistic double tracking effect, uh, which sounds very, very good. Um, trying to think what else is in here that... oh. There's a an exciter, which is like um, it is an, they call it an enhancer, I think, and it has like a bass enhancement and a mid range enhancement, which is like uh, mid range compression and, um, and a little bit of EQing. And then there's a, a brilliance control on that, which allows you to adjust your high end and how it cuts through the mix. Um, I, they call them something different, it's like body and I, foundation body and something else. But anyway, that's ba brilliance, and that's basically what it's for. And then you have a, a six-band EQ um, as well. So basically, this guy right here could replace like all the things you may be doing at the desk, and you can preset it. So you can literally walk into a gig and just say, okay, for this club, I'm going to use preset one, which is adjusted for like more treble. Preset two is adjusted for less treble. Um, and you know, three or four totally different cabinet models. And if you get really crazy, you can integrate this with MIDI and it let's like let's say you have like one of those fancy heads like a triple crown it has a midi uh, channel switching ability on it i could hit channel two and it could change to a 1960 a cap you know 
and channel one could be a black, a, you know, blackface Fender Deluxe Reverb combo amp cab. And then, you know, so, so just doing that gives you so many options for how to use this thing. But just the fact that I can take the head, just the head up there into a club, plop that down on the floor right next to it, I put this guy down, set it to preset, whatever, and then play away. Yeah. Um, is just wild. And it sounds just as good as the Kemper did, IR-wise. Um, I haven't actually used it as a straight-up IR loader yet. And it'll do stereo IRs, so you can put two IRs in the sky at the same time and mix and match them and blend them together. Um, and I think the Wall of Sound software actually allows you to make your own impulse responses based on, uh, like, two IRs and combine them. So you could have like a mix with like six mics in it if you really wanted to and put that on there as a preset. Um, the tools, this is Bluetooth. So once you hook your phone up, um, basically there's a code on the bottom uh, that you put in and it, and it it's on the barcode, but um, the code on the bottom you put into your phone and then it syncs up and all of a sudden you've got all the controls running your phone. And you can literally take your presets, you know, and, and stack them up right there as you're, you know, getting ready to play or whatever. Um, you can, of course, access it, with, access it with a computer. You can back up all the settings. Um, Torpedo has, or Two Notes, has a store where you can buy their cabinet models. Uh, it's, it's linked directly into um, the Wall of Sound software that runs on your PC or your Mac. And, yeah. I mean, I have, like, I've yet to see a product... That's this well engineered that just has, it's got everything you want on it. Like the only thing that maybe it's missing is delay. That, that might be it, but delay is tap tempo. So I think that's kind of the reason why they're like, eh, we really don't want to put that in there because we feel like most people would put that in a loop and tap tempo it. Um, And even the reverb is more focused on like an actual natural ambient setting kind of thing. Uh, oh, it has a noise gate in it too, and the noise gate's excellent. You set the noise gate; it's post it's post your uh, speaker, and then basically what you do is you click learn, and it listens for whatever background noise is there and just shuts it off. So when you're running to the front of house, your signal's totally clean. Um, I can't say enough good things about how I think this thing's going to pan out going into a gig situation. Uh, also worth mentioning. Uh, you do have to buy different ohm rating versions, which kind of sucks. 16 ohm, 8 ohm, 4 ohm. I think they're doing a 4 ohm now. Um, and the caveat there is like if you run a two cab situation, this guy's not going to help you. Because, like, so if I chain these two cabinets together, um, they're in parallel. And so I'm going to get four ohms out. So I run the, I have to run the mark on four, four ohms. It actually basically says two four ohm outputs. You plug into one of them. Or you can plug both cabinets into a four ohm out, and it'll and it'll do the work for you because it basically just plugs them together in parallel. Um, that's one way of accomplishing the same thing. So you're running, you know, eight ohm speakers in four ohm mode, but it should be should be fine. Um, and of course, they even tell you that in the manual, like no big deal. Um, but you can't do that with this guy, and you have to have the different ohm ratings in order to be able to do it properly. But then again, you know, if you're dragging two cabs around, I don't really think you're going to need a torpedo captor either. Because, um, you know, you're dragging two cabs around, which 
suggests you're going to be playing some pretty loud places anyway. Yep. Uh, great tool. Can't recommend it enough if you're looking for a cheap attenuator. These are like 450 bucks right now on Sweetwater. They're on sale. Um, and uh, I'm sure the Cab M, which is the pedal board equivalent, is like more of the same kind of, you know, same philosophy and design principles. Um, that thing is a Swiss Army knife, the Cab M. And I, I, and I plan at... on picking one of those up too. The Cab M. So, yeah. The Cab M can actually take, so like you can plug that between your head and your speaker cabinet and it'll actually take that signal. Or you can plug pedals into it and it'll do that too. I was looking at that and I was like, you're kidding. I can run a speaker cable through it or, or like a regular quarter inch like instrument cable. And I'm like, yeah, no, no, no problem. Like who designed this product? It sounds like mad science. Um, but but you know it, I've heard the the um, the results on on clips and stuff and they sound really good. This yeah, guy, you can you can run your pedals right into it, run that right to the PA, right? I was kind of apprehensive about selling the Kemper until I got this guy, and then I was like, I don't really need the Kemper. I mean, as much as it's a great direct solution, um, a couple of things that because we did the little Kemper postworm last week, which just ended up be griping about a couple of people who reached out to me. Um, but the Kemper accomplishes a lot of things, but it's not the convenience package you think it is. Um, there's a lot of like little, Hey, yeah, this is almost perfect, but like, there's this little thing about it. Um, like the, you know, the power head, I still got a, a 16 pound head I'm carrying around. I've got a, a six pound four foot controller, a bag cables, you know, extra cables that you wouldn't normally have. Um, this guy, he weighs maybe four pounds total and he gives me all my cabinet modeling. Yeah. The head weighs 12. It's probably more than that. It's probably 20 pounds. Um, but, but reality is I think I get a better sound out of that. So I'd rather take the head and this guy and be more comfortable with what I'm doing than to go through this like shenanigans of having this giant bag I'm carrying around that weighs, you know, 40 pounds before it's all said and done. Um, trying to sneak in the condo at two o'clock in the morning uh, after doing an open mic or something like that. Um, so I don't wake up my neighbors. I, I think this is the way to go for, for people who are like on the fence about digital specifically, but also like have good stuff that they want to use. They just can't like in their house. I think there's a lot of, pro this is like a Swiss army knife of tools for people who like tube amps and the box, I have it sitting here somewhere. Um, it was funny because one of the things, like their whole marketing, and I'm, Jim, you've probably seen this box before. I think you guys sell two notes at uh, Guitar Center. But for tube amp lovers, for home, live, and studio. So, like, they totally know what, what, the, what a Swiss Army knife this tool is. And if you read the manuals in there, it's all over there. It's like, do you want to use it for this? Do you want to use it for this? Do you want to use it for this? And like, they, they just, they have the use case and they built based on the use case. It's a very, very cool product. Um, and actually I think this is probably even preferred for me now than even the torpedo live. Cause it's got extra features and I don't have to have a big rack. Um, I mean, this guy is small. Uh, this is as small as the Dr. Z air brake I had. So actually I actually had the brake light, but, um, which is funny because I can see the heat sinks inside. Oh, cool thing. Uh, when you turn this thing on, it's got indicator lights. Like the whole thing lights up. And they the lights actually mean something. So 
you got to kind of pay attention to what's going on sometimes because like blinking light means you're syncing Bluetooth. Um, if it blinks red, I think it means that you're clipping the input signal, which there's a, a pad so you can go between two different input settings. Um, I haven't clipped. I'm using a 25-watt amp. This thing will go all the way up to 100. So that's that's pretty wild because I've been looking at heads and I'm like, I don't want a 100-watt head. I got offered um, a Bogner Ecstasy for my Kemper. And like, I was, I was, I was close. I almost went, bring it over. Um, and I was thinking, I was like, dude, I'm never going to be able to use a Bogner Ecstasy in my house. Like, what am I on? This hadn't shown up yet. Yeah. I granted, I still wouldn't have bought the Bogner Ecstasy, but it's <laughs> this makes that kind of thing possible. Got a Feather Twin. Put it through this. Plug yep. it into a pair of studio monitors, um, yep. and/or just attenuate the crap out of it. Well, my and uh, it suddenly becomes usable. My Marshall. Yeah, yeah. I mean, PSL. that's a perfect example. Uh, now, notes on attenuation. So, like, if you're not familiar with attenuators, I've, I've, I talked to, to Nick uh, Bombers about it when I was in um, Michigan, and uh, he's used the Rivera Rock Crusher, and he wasn't he wasn't a big fan. He said, you know, it changes the tone, and while I agree with him. Like, as a tool for being able to play at sensible volumes 95% of the time at home, I think I'll put up with the tone change. It definitely does. It changes the highs. It changes the lows. Part of that's the Fletcher-Munson curve, like, equal loudness. We've talked about that on the show before. When things are turned up, you know, your treble is exaggerated, um, and your bass tends to be a bit exaggerated as well at low volumes. So it just... Um, you're going to have to make adjustments when you go from quiet to loud. And the other thing is like the quality of the reactive load matters a lot. Um, they're not all created equal. You have to try them out, find the one that feels best to you. Uh, one of the things that the problem with the ox that people have said over the years is like the reactive load in there is not that great. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that the reactive load in the ox is built to play like a deluxe reverb um, in the same kind of speaker interaction and, and uh, um, transformer. I think this is more middle of the road. I think they looked for like what are the basic characteristics and try to enhance it to feel like what people would want it to feel like instead of trying to be like, no, we're going to be just like a deluxe reverb. Um, and I think my understanding is the aux can actually change its input settings for that. So, but if your presets are all set on this, the stock, you know, feel, then it's going to feel like a deluxe reverb, right? Um, so that's, so the, that's just things to keep in mind. Yeah. So the cab M that you can just take your pedals, plug right into that, can't you? And yes. then go from that right into your, your PA, your DI. Yes, yes. Or you can plug an amp into the cab M and run that straight out. The only difference is it's not a load box or attenuator in any way. So it's going to just pass signal through it. Right. Uh, and obviously when you want to do that, you, the cab M will, will basically, you know, put out a clean signal. But it's so the way it works is like amp head goes in and then on the same side, there's an output for running your cab. And that's where the load goes. Yep. But the the signal gets shunted and like adjusted so that it could be line level and go out to the yep. PA. So exactly. it's a direct box, but but it's like a great direct box for when right. it offers cabinet emulation. Right, right. And that way you can quick um, send the cabinet emulation to the front of house while you use your regular cabinet mm -hmm. on there, and they could even mic it and put the two together yeah. or whatever. Yeah, a lot of people do that. I mean, I, I think it's more trouble than it's worth, especially with the amount of control that these boxes offer. Yep. I mean, I can literally, you can get, so like 
I'll be the first to tell you having an IR is not the same as having a cap in the room. Yeah. Um, especially even like the Kemper product, like it, it, it sounds good. And especially if you're running in, into a cab, like it can sound just like an amp. But the problem is that when you're running direct out, it's never going to sound like an amp because it's, you, you're, you know, you're modeling a speaker and a, and a microphone. No, I was just um, wondering, like, like if you wanted to do a live gig, you could take that cab M, run that as your, sure. If it's, you're going to a PA. I think the M in cab M stands for cabinet monitor. Monitor. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm not really sure, but not I think modeling. that's. I, yeah, I don't be. think that. I mean, it might be, but I think that there's like a little double entente there, and they are French, so double entente is probably a, an effective word yeah. for this. Yeah, I um, mean, honestly, like we were talking before the whole thing started, I'm gonna pick up one of those uh, Captor X's that you've got there. Um, I, I honestly, the only thing that I wish this had that it doesn't have is a loop. Because yeah. then you could take your vintage combos, like your 65 Deluxe Reaver, your 67, you know, Silverface Deluxe with no effects loop, plug it into this guy, and now you got an effects loop. Now, yeah. there are products that do this that are not much more money. So, like, the the um, uh, Fryat Power Station would be the step up, in my opinion, from this guy, which is doesn't have irs on it so it's like a whole that's like a whole other side of the thing but you could take a power station in a cab m and then you don't need this guy anymore right because the power station would give you the loop it would give you um it gives you eq options for the reactive load and it gives you 6l6 power it's a tube power amp um and it is 100 watts or something like that it's it's crazy loud uh, and from what I understand, like these little lunchbox heads, like this would be considered a lunchbox head up here. Um, these guys through that thing are like perfect. They sound really, really good. Yeah. Um, I honestly, I think I would challenge you to find me a hundred watt head that I'm going to like more than that. Um, I I've played the 95 watt version of that. I played the Mark five thirty five. I've played, um, 100 watt marshals before i owned a rivera knucklehead 100 for several months i had a prs sanzera 50 um i'm no stranger to big amps but i'll tell you even though that people are like oh big bottles big bottles big bottles i don't think the i don't think the power tubes matter as much as people think they do and in this case they just sound sweeter and it yeah. sounds more focused um so for me like that cuts the mix better i i i think not all el84 amps are that way i'm not, not what i'm saying I'm not saying it's the L84s. I'm saying that this power section in this particular amplifier, driven by EL84s, sounds really freaking good. Um, in fact, Jeff uh, of uh, Good Time Music and I have been having back and forth conversations about the 25-watt Mesas for several years now about that damn power section being so good. Um, and even the Fillmore 25 has got a different power section. And like, he likes it. I'm not a big fan. Uh, I think it's okay. I would rather have the 50 watt version, but um, yeah, the six v sixes are just a different. They're a different animal. I believe that's running six v sixes. Yeah, I, I uh, yeah, I've been looking at uh, uh, some of these. The, the um, you're looking at the California though, right? Yeah, the California King. The California King. You mean the uh, just the California? Yeah, California Tweed. 
California Tweed, right? Yeah, Tweed. Yeah. Yeah, it's Tweed. Yeah. I'm looking for the tube complement for the 25 watt. Um, seriously, just show me the tubes. I've got to get a, I've got to get a, get some PA gear. Yeah, six um, sixes. sixes or, no, yeah. there's six two sixes. Yeah. I got to get uh, some PA gear. Um, and this this right here is going to be my key to getting a lot of recording done at home. Because, as you know, microphone placement is such a pain in the ass. It's just. Yeah, Jim, Jim, Jim you want to talk about that for a minute? So, like, a lot of people don't understand that whole thing. Yeah, so and, that's that's why I, I contacted you this week, right? And I yeah. said, uh, hey, listen, where the hell do I get my microphone to get some more highs? You are the, not the first person to ask me this question. Yeah, and I I was trying like heck. Excuse me, I haven't gotten a lot of sleep. I, I was trying like heck to get the microphone in the right spot to get a sweet spot, to get what I hear. You know, the hardest thing, I think, I don't think a lot of people appreciate how hard it really is to get your room sound in even one or two microphones. Because um, I tried, like, I tried a room mic and a, and a close-up mic. I tried to get them, you know, because I could get them in phase, but I just wasn't getting the raw energy of the room that I really needed to be able to go, okay, you know, that is what I hear. That's what I want to be in the recording. Because, you know, for the listeners who don't know, we're recording a new uh, uh, theme song. And yeah, so we're going to be I've doing been, it very, very soon. Yeah, so I've been working on some stuff. i got some ideas. So do I. And I'm <laughs> trying to, to bounce them off myself, and I'd love to be able to send them to you, but what I hear is this, ah, and what I'm hearing is, you know. <laughs> All right. So, so what Jim, what Jim described to me a situation was, so there's, um, you'll hear some terms bandied back and forth when people are talking about how you mic a cap. So on axis, off yep. axis. Um, I want to describe how to close mic a cap, like just, just straight up explain it to the audience. Uh, do I have a, I usually have a microphone laying on my desk here somewhere and I don't appear to, but I do have, I have this guy, which is a, like a pop filter for a microphone, right? This goes for a little, uh, iPhone mic that I have, um, pull this, there's like dirt and stuff on here. But anyway, so picture my hand being the speaker, right? And this is the front of the microphone. So it would be, this would be, I'm singing into this right now. Yep. So basically what we would be doing, this is your speaker. You're going to take the microphone and you're going to place it directly at the speaker, the the like the uh, grill of the, the speaker cloth, right? You want to back up just a hair. You don't actually want to touch the speaker cloth because it's going to vibrate, right? Yeah. It's going to vibrate and it's going to vibrate the microphone. And it causes brushing sound. Yeah, it can, but but actually over time it can damage the microphone um, just because of the vibration. And I mean, it can take 10 years. There are certain microphones, like if you're using a ribbon mic, I don't have I have zero experience recording with ribbon mics. Um, they're expensive. They're it's easy to damage them. I don't think they really have that much of a place in a home project studio um, because they're very sensitive. Um, very sensitive in the sense that like you could break them easily. Uh, there are definitely reasonable alternatives, and I'm and sure there are expensive. people that are experienced using them at home. But like I just wouldn't recommend doing it unless you know what you're doing. 
Um, and then of course there's uh, like this guy, right? Condenser microphone. Uh, it says AT2020. You can look it up on the Guitar Center or whatever. But anyway, um, same guy, same thing. If you're gonna use a condenser, I'll close mic with a condenser. I know a lot of people are like, you shouldn't do that. It's gonna overload the bass. I have yet to find a condenser that cannot handle the bass that I'm putting out of a guitar cabinet. Um, and that's because I don't I don't push my bass, right? If you're recording metal, maybe you wouldn't want to use a condenser. Maybe you would, um, but you're not going to use it right up on the grill cloth like that. So basically what I'm saying about grill cloth is right at the center of your speaker. If you cannot find the cone of your speaker, use a flashlight to look through the grill and find the cone. Now, what's going to happen is you're going to want to put it right in the center, right? Like that's the, the immediate inclination. You probably aren't going to like that all that much. Um, there's actually a dead spot in the very center of your speaker cone. Um, and so what happens is you get all this treble coming from the outside edges towards the middle, but you don't get anything else really. Um, so what I would actually recommend you do is look for the spot where the the cone, the little center circle, actually meets the, the paper edge. You know, the pa- that's really the cone, right? Um, that's the dust cap is what we're talking about, the cone in the middle. You want to find where the dust cap ends and the cone begins, and you actually want to start with your microphone right there. And in general, what I found works for me is about an inch, about the width of my thumb from the cone and the dust cap. I want the microphone to be an inch in. And then you'll see in a lot of modelers, they go one inch, two inch, three inch, four inch, five inch, six inch, which would be the extreme edge of the cone. Um, As you move out, it's going to get darker. You're going to lose more highs and it's going to get woofier. So Jim, where you were at was six inches. You were you were out at the edge of the cone, and you were probably trying to angle it back in, because um, that's what everybody thinks like you're supposed to do. No, you're just really supposed to just stick it straight at the speaker and then move it out, because that whole cone moves and it put and it focuses frequencies in different places. Um, and different speakers have definitely different like different places where the microphone likes to be, um, but I found that to the right or left, an inch off the cone is you know, or onto the cone really is, is really the best way to go an inch off the dust cap really. Um, and I use the 609, which has a giant pickup pattern on it. I mean, it's, it's like a, it's, I got a hairbrush. It's kind of like this. It's got a pickup patterns like that big. Um, and they're flatter. So you get closer to the cone, which means you're going to have to back off a little bit. Now, if you, if you set your microphone up and you're listening through headphones, so you got a pair of Bayer, you know, bt 330s or whatever like whatever the the bear dynamic ones are um you will probably hear some spikiness you're gonna hear like some trouble that's like i don't like that maybe some sizzle that shouldn't be there and there's an easy easy fix for that take your microphone and back it up a couple inches one two three inches until you get to about three three inches you're not really introducing much room sound you can actually back up. I've had it where I've literally sat with a ruler and measured out eight inches. And it's, I mean, it sounds really good there if the amp is cranked up and it's the it's a big enough cabinet. Um, so that's something to experiment with too. It's just the distance between the microphone and the cabinet. And depending on how the, what the quality of the room is, what kind of floors you got, whether you've elevated the cabinet um, will affect how well that works. But it's going to take the woofiness out of it and it's going to make it sit in the track better. But the other thing is it's going to do is it's going to tame some of those, some of that high end, um, particularly the frequencies that are, that are pretty potent. And if you can't like, 
here's another thing I want to stress. If you can't get it to sound right, generally speaking, it may just be that you don't like the speaker. People don't people don't hear amplifiers the same way you do with a microphone. When you sit down with an amplifier in a room and you're playing, you're hearing the sound reverberate all off the room. You're hearing more the room than you are the, than you are the amplifier in some cases. Um, and when you sit down with a microphone and you play around with placement for the first couple of times you do it, you realize I, it doesn't sound like that. No, it doesn't. It, it actually does. Like that's what the speaker sounds like. It, the problem is you're used to hearing it in an acoustic environment that is absorbing certain frequencies and all that. And when you're capturing it that close to the cone, it just takes, it just takes and runs with it. Well, so, it, yeah, it's like your voice, your human voice. Whenever you hear yourself on a recording, you go, I don't sound like that. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Um, it's just you're used to hearing it, you know, affected by the saturation of the room. In yep. other words, like what's absorbing frequencies and what's not. And in your head. In your own I head had place. the experience, like my, my my parents' place where I rehearse a lot. This guy has a lot of trouble and a lot of presence, like rip, rip paper. We went to GearFest. We had that Airbnb. And it was abysmal acoustics in there. My ears were like bleeding. It hurt so bad because there's just so much trouble coming out of that amp. I went to uh, Fort Knox Studios in the city in one of their rehearsal spaces, and it sounded dynamite, right? The room was just treated enough. I went to um, Michigan, and when we were playing there, the room was so dead that I was cranking the treble. I've never had that like happen before. And it and it, it isn't the amp, it isn't the cab. It's just the room. Like it yeah. can make that much of a difference. And I mean I this is not I'm just providing real world examples. I've known this for a long time, but um that's a huge deal. And especially when you buy something like you get it home and if it's in your room it sounds like crap. Now you know why people return things that are really expensive. Yeah. Because they don't they don't realize like it isn't just about what it sounds like in the store and most stores have pretty good acoustics. I know people are like, Oh no, they don't No, They're, they're pretty dead rooms. Like in my, in my experience, the places I go, I get them home. They're a lot more lively. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, that's not what it sounded like, but it's because the room is more dead in the store. They've got merchandise hanging on the walls, diffusing everything and yep. carpet on the floor maybe, or, you know, yep. and it's just, it's a whole, Another ball of wax. Yeah, walls are made of real wood instead of laminate. Yeah. There's a there's a big difference. Yeah. So in your case, Jim, like I said, like an inch off the cone, yeah. you know, or inch off that dust cap, and then experiment. I would not play too much with room mics and stuff like that. And the reason why is because I think what you're missing is not the room mic. I think you're missing reverb. And even just a subtle amount of room reverb can make that make or break that and it's going to be better acoustically than what you're going to get in your room in your room with a room mic yeah. now here's the issue like when you're when you're demoing stuff and this is part of this is part of my my tirade about people demoing gear on the internet is they don't give you an accurate depiction of what it sounds like in the room and i think that contributes to the fact that people think that tone is supposed to be a certain way yeah, they definitely don't. When you go um, to when you go and watch, not not that they don't do a good job. It's just that, like, okay, let's go to Anderton's for example, because they they demo just about anything, right? So 
Anderton's get something, and they throw it up on their table, and they start a demo. When Pete Honore is playing, those room mics are off. Not just, yeah. not just uh, you know, mixed in. They are off. Well, they wear. They even wear lavs. I mean, yeah. you're not getting any of the rooms out. And I have a feeling those rooms are treated too. Oh yeah. Um, but it's just it's just such a pain in the butt to capture room sound and make it sound natural and right. And, and so, in fact, when you do hear it captured right, it usually sounds wrong to your ears. Right. And so what they do is with um, with them, typically, unless they're showing an amp and a cabinet like in a certain way, they don't even bother miking a cabinet. Like if they're demoing pedal number, you know, four twenty. Let's say the new, uh, what's that one I'm kind of interested in, the Mjolnir. Um, let's say they're demoing the Mjolnir. That's, they're not going to mic the cab. They run that right into one of those devices that you've got. Yeah, I mean, they have something like this, or they have, you know. They have the ox box. An ox. I yep. used to use the ox on there all the time. Uh, and, and, and that's okay, but you've got to realize that your miking job at home may not be that great. And that the sound you're getting is a mic'd up sound, not well, what it sounds like in the room. How many times have we sat in a room? You, you've you done it too. You sit in a room, set your stuff up. You're like, okay, my pedals, good. I'm going to play that guitar. I'm going to play those pedals, these settings, this amp, these settings. Get to the room and it's garbage where you're going to play live. You know what I mean? Because because yeah. you, you're I in mean, a room, whether I, it's made of glass, you're you're literally sitting in a glass window. I, I I've literally been where I felt like I was in an aquarium when I was playing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like, there's nothing I can say to dispute this. This is why I'm kind of sitting here going, "Yep." I mean, yeah. Um, I thought I you were looking, in... you were waiting for the punchline. <laughs> no, I that was the punchline. Yeah. Like. What, what am I supposed to say to this? Yes, of yeah. course. Um, or if you're outdoors. Or if you're in a crowd. Yep. Like, people don't realize that bodies absorb frequencies. Um, and it's just one of those situations where the first time you do that, you go, how the hell do I improve this? Right. Uh, Some of it's front of house, right? Crowd, Some is, of a, it's... crowd is a perfect example because how many times have you done um, sound check and then come out and it doesn't sound anything like sound check? Let's go back here for a second. So the remedy to this, right, which I'm all about solutions. So I see a solution for this right away. Yep. If you're running into these situations where you're gigging and something's not cutting through, let me give you a hint. Don't set up your settings before you get there. Because now an open mic, it's kind of like, eh, you got to sort of know where you're going to be. But um, if you got a gig, you want to you wanna play like half a tune or something. And just like listen to the way that things are mel melding in the band mix. Now that that obviously can change based on like if you're going to do some Pink Floyd songs and then you're going to you're going to turn around and play Chuck Berry, you don't want the same mix for both those songs. But the point is that you're going to know what fits with the other instruments, and that and that's really the challenge, right? So like I was having a conversation with uh, one of our show listeners this evening actually, and we were talking about the appropriate use of amp distortion and overdrive versus pedal overdrive and what the difference is there. And then I said something to him that I think is relevant here, which is that I would kick on the amp overdrive and distortion 
kind of fill out the sound when yep. you want that hi-fi quality that wraps around everything and kind of sits in the in the back of the mix. Because usually amp distortion's louder, like you push the volume to get in front of everybody. So I said, I said, if you want to cut, that's when you hit your overdrive pedal. Like that's what that's for, is to give it the extra mid focus to get the to get the tone out in front of people. But um, I was going to take it back even further. Tone Junkie, he's talked about this. He said the way that he learned to dial in amps was that he just he got frustrated because he had you know like he'd have something like a matchless, right? And then he'd come in and he'd go, why is this thing not sitting well in the mix? And then he realized that what was happening was he was not tweaking his settings for the the mix, like for the room and the stuff that was there and the people he was playing with. And then he started making these tonal adjustments. And what happened was he actually started to change his ear. Like he started to realize that he was more after that sound because he wanted it to cut. And what he found out was, and this is the thing that freaks everybody out when they first realize it, like when they're young and they're you know, scooping the mids all the time. When they first get into a gigging situation is the more you want to cut through the mix, the more you crank up your mids. I go for the mid control before I go for my master volume. There is a reason for that. And if you have a really good, well-designed preamp or amplifier, it has a mid control on it. It's going to, it's going to boost your ability to cut through the mix. And there have been times where I could drown people out with the master volume, but I could use that mid control and just get myself right where I need to be. Um, that's why I don't shy away from things like the Mark V, which has pronounced mids. Uh, Marshalls. Marshalls are great. Pronounced mids. Um, even old tweeds have pronounced mids. I wasn't a big fan of old tweeds until I got to play some real ones. Um, but they have that thing, you know. Um, I don't understand how people get away with Vox and Fender. I know people say Vox has pronounced mids, but they're not in the right places in my mind. Like, from for the mixes I end up playing in, they don't fit right. So, that's all I'm saying. Like, in that kind of a situation, you have to adapt your ear, and you have to learn what cuts. And the only way you do that is by making the decision not to cut until you get to the, the band and go, now I know what controls I need to spin. Or you make tweaks, and then you make notes afterwards. You get off stage, you look at your knobs, and you go, this is how I had it set. Or it, nowadays, you can just take a picture, right? Um, and then go home and go, why did I have it set this way? And start asking yourself the hard questions and start playing it in your home environment to get your ear changed. It's an interesting concept. Oh, yeah. I, I, um, that's why it's a good idea to have settings for, like, if you play certain clubs, certain gigs more often than others, you, you should get where you know your settings. It's a good starting place. It will never always be the same. You don't know if they've added carpeting. If there's more people or less people, where they're standing in the room compared to where yes. you're pointing your your stuff. All that stuff matters. All of it. You, I, I did a sound check it? once. Let me, let me um, throw this up there. I did a sound check once in a very large place, and we're we're on stage and and doing our thing, and I'm like, wow, it sounds awfully boomy and awful. Um, and this is probably a, I don't know, 8,000, 10,000 seat thing. And it, um, it's inside. I said, wow, this is horrendous. And the sound guy goes, no, no, this is good. This is good. And I don't know what it is that he's doing over there in his headphones, but he's doing something, right? 
And we get on, when we get on stage, though, it sounded great. It it lost it all, and that boominess, all that all that stuff that I had was because I don't have six thousand people sitting in a seat yet. And there's going to be more as they get up because we're the opening band. They're going out to get beers. They're coming in and out. Right. And, you know. But I'm just saying that that he had it right. He knew exactly what to and what not to. This is this stuff is a science, folks. It's been um, uh, planned out by people that are much smarter than any any one of us. You know what I mean? Well, you go. You go through these situations, especially in like local bars and clubs, right, where they're not designed for acoustics. When you walk into a place like that, if you've done this enough, you have a feel for what to do. Um, and you can kind of make guesses. But if you're not that experienced yet, I would just adjust from the stage. Maybe play the first song, especially in like an open mic situation, then make adjustments. Yep. Just plan for the first song to be sort of throwaway. Yep. So if you got one that's more flashy and doesn't have to sound as good, like that's where I would be like, that's the song I'm going to play first. And then the next song will be the one where I have to be able to do you know, the high and low thing and cut the mix. And, um, and find a song where you can use most of, if not all of your effects and the things you're going to do that night. Because again, you get to that one pedal, you'll hit it and you'll go, what the can't happen to my tone? Yeah. And your pedals will make a, especially things like modulation will make a drastic difference on EQ in the room. And I have had like a chorus where I'll kick it on and all of a sudden my tone just disappears. Yep. And I'm like, what the hell? I like the, vo there's no volume drop. The, yep. you know, the tone knob is set pretty neutrally. Like what the hell is going on here? And it's just because the phasing of the room and how, how fast your guitar signal, cause like your guitar's bouncing off a wall or something coming back at you and it just disappears. Yeah. I literally um, had that happen last week. Yeah. Literally. Um, and with modern PA systems, you may not be able to hear yourself, but the audience can hear you, <laughs> which is even more scary because you're like, I'm going to play my way through this, hoping that it sounds good. <laughs> you know, and you get like an inkling of what's coming out of the mains coming back at you. Yeah. Um, it's worth mentioning. I was I was uh, listening to somebody talk about touring with Van Halen. They were an opening act for Van Halen. And um they were talking about how when they went on stage the first night, of course they, all their rig was there and like, um, it, you know, they had sound checked and everything, but what they didn't realize was that when Van Halen set up all their equipment, they have, so they were one of these weird bands where what you heard in the audience was exactly what they were hearing on stage. They had a duplicate mains PA pointed back at them from, the like they didn't use like wedges in the conventional sense oh. it was like column pa pointed back at the band and i'm like i when i heard that i went holy like what um because if you've ever been to like one of those arenas and you can imagine being in front of those speakers and that's how they wanted to hear themselves so these guys were like the first time, even with plugs and stuff in, they were just like, what in God's name is this? Yeah. Um, you know, they hit the first power cord and it was like, holy crap. It was like the RCA commercial. Everybody's hair is blown yeah. back. You know? It's like, what like, happened? Like back to um, the future. <laughs> and I kind of wonder if Van Halen was doing that just to mess with the bands that were playing with them. Like they knew they could get away with it. So they were just like, they're like, hey, wouldn't it be funny if we did this to all our opening bands? 
you know, they dropped it down like 12 dB for them, but like for the opening bands, it's like full power. <laughs> that's funny. That is too um, funny. Yeah, that sounds well, like something they would do too, by the way. Depending on where you are in the opening stint, like a lot of times bands, depending on, you know, depending on the band and depending on the tour, sometimes there will be one or two local gigs. So you'll have like um, uh, possibly a comedian or a solo act, then um, a, like a local thing, and then, you know, the touring opening act, and then, of course, the big guys. Um, sometimes you'll play to an open or an empty arena. You might play to a couple hundred people. Right. I mean, even in a huge place, because um, they, uh, they just want you to warm the place up. Most of the people are out still buying T-shirts, getting checked through security, getting beer, you know, sodas. Yeah, you're just, you're just like the, the, yeah. you know, the, the, uh, the B-roll. That's right. If you will, that's like supposed to be running when you come in the room. Right. Um, which, you know, it's not a bad gig. I, you're going to get paid for it. So, no. um, I remember but, uh, one time I went out to see, I can't remember what big country act now, but it was like a, it was like, um, Keith Urban or, uh, um, Oh, what the heck's that guy named um, Tim McGraw or somebody like that, who was an opening act. And I'm in the, you know, I'm getting my beer and I'm hearing, of course, you're just hearing echoes of everything. You don't really know what it is. It's like Muzak at Macy's, you know, I mean, it's, I don't sure. know how it is. It's probably playing Indian Outlaw or whatever it was. And I'm, I'm like, and I get inside and it's like four people on stage. That's it. I mean, that's. The whole band, himself included, was like four people. <laughs> Excuse me. And um, they uh, um, did their thing. A lot of the music, believe it or not, was covers. Um, it, it, there were very few originals. Um, it. I like to be that person that shows up early because like you and like a lot of people, because I know I can run up to the stage at that point still it, it, they're not going to throw me away and I can look to see what the persons are playing and what pedals are using and right. different shit like that. I kind of look over and, Oh, what's that? Um, so I, I like to do that stuff. Um, uh, sometimes you'll get a lucky break and you'll get, Oh, look, no security. <laughs> you get, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Well, I, I, I'm always interested because when you walk up there, like I can tell you that I've been to some gigs where people are like, Oh, this is the rig. And then you walk up, and that's not what they're using. <laughs> like, yeah. It's not even close. No. <laughs> you know? And and another thing to consider, if, especially if you're an opening act, is where you're going to be. Because when you think about the fact that, let's say you're the you're the local opener, and then there's a national opener, and then there's the big band. Right. Well, there's your gear parked in front of their gear their parked gear. in front of their gear. Right. And. You've got about this much stage. Yeah, yeah. You usually have about eight inches to stand, and then like another four inches to put your amp. Yeah, you know? yeah. Literally, I mean the the um, and of course most of the time they've got uh, dark like sheets pulled over them so that you know this and you don't get a light show really. You get you get like a spot that's directly down yeah. so that people it might can't be, see. It might have a color tint to it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of, I, I actually want to be one of those guys that's like, no, just leave the lights off. Like, 
let's just we're just gonna play. Yeah. Like I don't need any light. Um but uh yeah, no, dude, like those are those are cool stairs. We have other topics tonight. I know we do. We do. Um we do. Start off by talking about that uh specific guitar player in the CTA. Um CTA. Chicago Transit Authority. Oh yeah. So Terry Cap. Yeah, so um, I went down the rabbit hole like Monday or Tuesday this week, and I was I was looking for something to listen. listen now, to now I just want to f- foreshadow this with the people that don't know that David lives in Chicago, so we might be talking Chicago about band. Chicago Transit Authority, which then became the, the band. band Chicago. They started yes. out as Chicago Transit Authority. Actually, and, started out as another band, but I forget what the name they was. They did. Uh, it, was, it was like Renegades or something. Yeah, like that. some ridiculous thing. What's funny is. So I want to give I want to give a little background of uh, one of the things I was watching one of those background things on Chicago before you get going and um, yeah. the keyboard player or the or the um, horn section leader or whatever was talking about how they got thrown out of a lot of clubs because they were told play covers we want we want covers now of all bands yeah we're talking about the same band that went hard to say I'm sorry you know yeah. or uh, it. it Okay, this very band was was drug rattled, um, uh, fusion, uh, progressive, um, bordering on the line of hard rock um, band that had horns, a yes. horn section, a three part horn section, a quality um, horn section, very like high quality. Before Earth went in fire, like that was the horn section, you know. Um, so, um, here's what happened. So I'm, I'm doing some work and I'm like, I need, I want some music to listen to. I'm a fan of Chicago, you know? Yeah. A lot of guys. In that I band. Um, up until that. anybody who's seen that movie, uh, clear history. There's a lot of guys in that band. Um, anyway, so I'm, I'm a fan. I know you're a fan. You like pop music, right? Yep. Um, so I have watched some of the footage I'd seen before of Terry Kath, like I already knew he's a monster of a player. Yep. Um, just listen to 25, 64, just listen to the solo Ugh. and just realize that that's like 1971. Um, and that the only other competition that guy would have been facing guitar wise in terms of like skill, agility, um, creativeness would have been like Jimi Hendrix. Okay. I, yeah. Now I want to, I want to put something else in perspective because I know what hole you're going down. I want to put the rest of the band in perspective. So, folks, when you when you think about what Terry Kath is working within, okay, he's not just a guitar player with a bass player, or a guitar player with another guitar player, or a guitar player with a keyboard yeah. player, okay? He's got keys, vocals, bass, but he's also got a three-part horn section. These guys Which are loud. They are loud on stage. That band was extremely loud. And the other side of it is you've only got, like, this much sonic space. I, I played because I, I you know we talked about this week we talked about twenty five or six to four so I sat down and I I played it this weekend As a matter of fact it was last night um holy crap I I was working the bass part out I was working but let me tell you something I always thought because you know I kind of looked at it in a in a superficial way. Um, what the heck's the, the that guy? That arrangement the... is wild. Holy crap! <laughs> I'm thinking the bass part is just do 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 do. You know, no. I, 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 
No, he's all over the place. And that's yeah. the guy that's singing lead. And it's Peter Cetera, isn't it? Peter Cetera, yeah. yeah. And I was like, holy, <laughs> sh he was just flying. I mean, it, and as I'm trying to keep up, I'm like, wait a minute. I was just playing Steve Harris. And it was like this. Um, yeah. And then, uh, you know, and then I tried to play Cass part. And that's what you're going to go on to do. And it, holy smoke, that's just a. <laughs> like it's just like don't even bother to tab it out like just make up something yourself and like try to try to get in that style because it's, it's i don't even think it's tabable to be honest i don't think somebody can actually notate all of the the stuff that he does in there but um and and even live is like totally different but anyway i stumbled across a live video of the band and it was actually good quality and because huh? you know you understand like 1969 1968 right. a lot of this stuff's going on you don't get good quality footage any of this stuff Unless it was like Woodstock or something like that. Right. And really. um, here I'm watching this and I'm like, good God, like they're even better than I thought they were. And I'm and, and this whole concert, like it just every song is just over the top, you know. Yep. And um, so I'm like, all right, he gets twenty five sixty four as six to four. He plays the solo and I'm like, what the hell kind of fuzz is he using? So yeah. I start going down the rabbit hole of looking at his gear. And what we realized, Jim and I were kind of going back and forth on this was a lot of these guys from like the 1960s and 19 early 1970s there's no documentation on what they were using um terry kath was using a radio shack pa amplifier yeah okay and um he was really well known for having used that now later on terry kath gets into some endorsements and he actually uh is a founding partner in pignos yep um which later on gets used by frank zappa and all these other people uh, in various settings. In fact, I saw uh, a television thing appearance with Zappa where he's playing through a pig nose. He's playing uh, the tor uh, the torture never stops through a pig nose. Uh, it is it is the most hilarious, and it sounds great by the way, which makes it even more hilarious. Um, but but Terry Kath was like a big guy behind this, and I kind of wonder how much of his philosophy for how he ran his regular rig ended up in the pig nose. But what was crazy was I'm like, all right, all right, I'll bite. What is this PA head like? What is going on with this thing? So I started digging around and I came across a forum post where somebody says, I have Terry Kath's PA head or one of his PA heads that he used to use to amplify his guitar. And I, I got it from a friend who got it from a friend and they had it in the Kath family storage along with a bunch of Chicago stuff. And the amp was trashed. Like, but it, what was interesting about it was that it was all tube it was all point to point. He opens it up. Like it looked like it might've been a really good circuit and that Kath might've actually been onto something, but a bunch of people in the thing were, were questioning whether this was Terry Kath's amp. Of course. Well, here's the, here was the big moment for me. It had pig nose knobs on it and they were the like die cast aluminum, original pig nose knobs, like the, the ones they would make before they would start to mass produce them, which says that he had access to them. And so he had them make a bunch of them and he put them on his PA heads, um, which was interesting. And then, of course, I did some more digging. I found that he was also a big fan of the Fender Showman, yep. um, which and, and like you're saying, Jim, you got a loud horn section. You're going to need a lot of amplification to get over those guys. Right. And so I think that's really why he favored those. But here's the here's the kicker. Live, he didn't use any pedals, maybe a Wawa. That's right, it. Right. Um, and, and when you think about what that actually means. He's just pushing sheer volume and he's pushing those amps to the point where they're ready to blow up. 
Yeah, there's a, like, there's a famous picture of Jerry Garcia where he's standing in front of a, uh, this giant wall of uh, PA gear, right? These PA speakers. And a lot of people are like, oh, that was Photoshopped or whatever. No, he was playing through... Um, I, correct me if I'm if I'm wrong here. It's either Apple or Macintosh. I want to say it was called Macintosh, but not Macintosh like we think of the computer company. Like hi-fi amps. They're hi-fi amplifiers, all hooked up to those speakers, pushing that wall of speakers. That's a real photo of real working speakers in a real situation. Um, so the Grateful yeah, Dead. To put this in perspective, the Grateful Dead was one of the first bands to have, I believe they had an A, B, and C rig, right? right? And the reason for this was it took them a day and a half to yep. put up the rig. They would literally be starting it in the afternoon, the the day before they yep. were actually going to perform, and they get done a couple hours before they start letting people in. And um, so when you think about what this means, they had, and, and at the time, they had the loudest PA, Yep. But they also had what was considered to be the most neutral PA on the planet. And that was because those guys were way about fidelity. They yep. wanted it to be like the, the perfect sound experience for all the people that were doing a lot of acid to watch The Grateful Dead. Yeah. Uh, and they had hilarious. But, yeah, it's uh, funny because they, yeah, they have a really cool, clean sound. When you listen to, I'm not a, look, I'm not a deadhead, but there's a lot of good dead music. You know, I mean, and... Um, you know, you take, I mean, uh, I've covered dead stuff now. I mean, I can't, I can't complain. Like I was not a big Grateful Dead fan, but there are songs I like in that catalog for sure. Yeah. Um, but what I'm saying is, so, um, when I was, when I started playing, I've told people that I said, look, I used, I use a modded system and they said, no, you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then it, it was when you mentioned the radio shack, I was like, wait a minute, that's right. We used to buy um, you gotta remember, this has been 30 years now for me, so it, it, some of this stuff is a little fuzzy. It, we used to buy our stuff at Radio, and we go to Radio Shack. There was this little dinky Radio Shack in my in my town. Um, it yeah. literally shared. This is how small it was. How small was it? I'm gonna tell you how small it was. We would go, and I would buy my books in the same store. Okay, so my novels. It was a bookstore. With a Radio Shack, and it was two guys who had this building, and they and they rented out and they rented apartments above it, and they had a Radio Shack on this side, and a bookstore on this side, and then they swapped it when the Radio Shack guy needed more room, and we would go in, and we would say, okay, yeah, we we read about because you'd get these electronics magazines, remember magazines? So we go to one side and buy the magazine, then go to the other side and say, yeah, I need this part, I need this, you know, I need this circuit. Or whatever, and we get circuit boards, or we get um, power amps, or we, you know, or we pick it. Let me tell you, so I, I am still shocked to this day that I'm not dead because there were several times when I was in there, you know, uh, taking something out, putting something in, thinking, um, I, I, I should have shocked myself a lot the way that that I ran things because I don't know if I ever grounded anything looking back. Yeah, I mean, well, and that was a different style of building circuits back then where you didn't even have the ground lug half the time. No, I mean, no, sometimes you go in and it was two prom plugs. Well, one thing that's worth mentioning that that PA system they had was called the wall of sound. Yeah, that's it. And and there's actually it has its own Wikipedia article regarding it. 
and yeah. it's worth reading up on because it's history. I mean, uh, other bands obviously have topped the loudest PA ever kind of thing since then. Um, but it's it's definitely worth noting that the Wall of Sound really precluded uh, the column PAs and that kind of stuff that came later. Um, yeah. And it's an interesting it's an interesting concept. But those guys they got to be deaf at this point. I mean, you know, back then nobody was wearing ear protection, so I still hear tinnitus, especially in this one at night. God, there, I, I have I, ten, I have tinnitus. I, I know I have tinnitus. It's a low yeah. level, but I have tinnitus. It's gotten um, it's gotten worse as I've gotten older. Uh, well, you're it's... still sitting in front of amplifiers. I mean, that's. Um, I highly recommend one of these guys, um, yeah. and telling your drummer to learn to be quiet. Well, I put, uh, yeah, and I often play um, and sing with earplugs in. Yeah, um, and that's the other thing is earplugs. I I literally have a pair that I carry with me. Uh, but um, one of the things that I, you know, I'd kind of forgotten is how we would buy, we would buy wood and we would build a, sh a, a, a cabinet. I mean, that was our first PA was you, you, you bought wood, you bought a cabinet, you went to Radio Shack, you bought the speakers, you bought the circuit, you put the darn thing together. It was a kit. I mean, it wasn't yeah. a kit like you buy kits now. Here's a Les Paul kit. Wouldn't have a PA kit, but Here's the stuff. And then to, to build the stuff, the sliders, yeah. just everything was knobs. I mean, it, it just, yeah. I don't need I no mean, stinking well, sliders. <laughs> well, you can get, you can get sliding pots now. I mean, you could get yeah. them back then too, but they were like a specialty item. And yeah. quite frankly, it meant that you had to cut the chassis so that they would fit. And it didn't make a whole lot of sense. A lot easier to drill a chassis than it's cut holes in it. Oh yeah. Um, we had, we had a guy that had brought some stuff home from the Navy when he got out of Vietnam. And, uh, um, he was uh, using sound-powered phones for communication to and from the band um, to do pyrotechnics. It was just two pieces of wire, one end to the other. It was just like uh, the old um, uh, Morse code system. He had yeah, where you tapped them together, and that's how you ignite. That's how you ignite it. <laughs> um, yeah, it, there was... Um, there's a lot of scary stuff, but, but I didn't, you know, I couldn't worry. It's a very first world problem <laughs> to worry about, um, oh, what tube do I have in my amp? I was worried about, do I have a tube in my amp? I mean, it was, and I think that's a big difference. We're, we were talking about this part earlier too, was here's Terry Kath, right? And Terry Kath was much like we were. Terry Kath was was, um, you know, think about the beginnings of, of uh, uh, Chicago. Chicago Transit Authority, they're, they're living in Chicago, obviously, right? Um, they're college kids, um, and uh, I say college kids now, I mean, in their 20s. And, and they had a band, and that was, you know, and they, and they were playing covers at one point, and then yep. they started to play original music. And they wanted to be able to play, and, and the problem is, when you've got to get loud, you've got to get, you, you've got to do one of two things. You got to, well, one of three things, earn, steal, or both. And you kind of got to, sometimes there's a DIY element to it. Look at Hendrix. Yeah. Look at what he did. He he couldn't find the left hand of guitar he wanted, so he flipped one upside down. Yeah. And I know right-handed players who, for a while, and I don't know if they were doing still the exist, same thing. They were flipping a left hand of guitar upside down. Yeah, that's so, still a thing. Yeah. And so I, I just... 
I don't want to. I don't want to poo-poo the people who um, are chasing tones and so on and so forth. But it it just seems that we forget, and we and we should how really good we have it. Yeah, Seriously, I mean musically. I'm talking about gear wise. You look at these. Look at these guitars, right? I mean, right. Not all these guitars existed when you know when yeah. Terry Cass I mean, started. Maybe nine or ten different instruments that he'd run into at music stores over and over and over. Um, he was a gadget guy, though, apparently, and that was the other thing that was kind of strange. Like, you can't find live videos where I see a bunch of pedals on the floor, but. He apparently used a lot of fuzzes and stuff and was really into playing around with equipment, which kind of led to the development of Pignose. Yep. Which Pignose is pretty much like the Pignose you buy today is basically the Pignose you bought back in like 1978 or whatever when they came out. So that's kind of interesting. Um, and that was an approved design. Like he used it. That was like he liked it and that was, he was okay with it. He wasn't just an investor to make money on that. Like, it was a product that he was planning on using. Yeah. So I don't know what that was exactly intended for. Maybe just mic it up, put it through PA. Um, yeah. I think yeah, that there is some magic. People don't, that's another thing. People don't understand this until they've done it. When you mic up a tiny, tiny little speaker, it's the same thing as having a microphone with a giant element. Right. Um, like a giant microphone. Yeah. Yeah, because people tend to think that like, oh, I might or, there's a six and a half inch speaker on this amp, like it sounds like crap. Well, yeah, it sounds like crap in the room. But like we said earlier, you put a tiny little microphone on that six and a half inch speaker, and it's gonna blow the doors off the place because right. it's just like having a gigantic microphone to pick up. Imagine having like an eight inch microphone, yeah, you know, <laughs> on a twelve inch speaker. Like that's basically what you're doing. Um, it, it it's pretty wild because I because I've done it, and I've been like. Whoa, that's not what I expected to hear. You know, there was um, a big there was a big push for pig noses around two thousand and three, four. People, I think were, that was they they launched a tube amp line or something at that point. Yeah, didn't they? Yeah, I want to say they were owned by Gorilla when they did it, and so they were like Gorilla Groove Tubes, like because Groove Tubes was on. There was something there. I don't know whether like Gorilla was its own thing or like Groove Tubes bought them or what, but it was like some joint venture. Um, and they started building tube amps for a while. Well, I, re- I don't yeah. think they do it or not. I don't, I don't know. I, so. I do remember a big push where people started buying. They were like, oh, yay, Gorilla. Or, I mean, Pignose is going back to what they were. And it was and it was just a little box. I mean. No, that it, is the Pignose. That is yeah. the Pignose. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, they were going back to that where it was just only this big. And it, it was um, amazing little amps. Um, Man, they had some weird gear. Yeah. Like, like, let's stop. Let's talk about that for a minute. So I have heard of people using the little Fender Twin Reverb mini thing yep. to record records. Um, the Champ has always been popular, which is a six and a half inch tweed. Um, I think it's a six and a half. It's a tiny tweed. Little bitty thing. Um, the smallest amp that Fender's ever made. And then, well, other than the minis. And then, like, um, so there's the Fender tweeds, like the, the Champ's that the vibro champ was popular for a while. Uh, Layla, I believe the end of Layla was recorded with a vibro champ. That was, that was Dwayne Allman's silver face vibro champ or whatever. Um, 
you think it was a Princeton, right? Like, oh yeah, everybody used Princeton's. Nope, VibroChamp. Um, but and 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 what I wanted to point out was like a lot of these things were done out of sheer convenience, and I think the engineers sort of instinctively knew like, yeah, that's super over in the corner. Yeah, that's a sleeper. Like that's the amp that makes the microphone sound like it's ten feet tall, because it literally does make the microphone sound like it's ten feet tall, especially in an analog format. And they had the right combo of gear to use that amp and make it sound like Jimmy Page wanted, you know, or Jimmy. And actually, Jimmy Page is probably the guy that came up with it because he's he's kind of off his rocker in that way. But um, my point is that, you know, don't ever look at a piece of gear and say it's obscure and useless. I learned my lesson at one point. I have a Vox Pathfinder, a solid state amp. I've talked about selling it multiple times. It's in my kid's bedroom. They can use it, right? And uh, it was my one of my first amps. Um, and they have a good clean tone. That's what everybody's always said. And I've never been a huge fan of it. But I was scrolling through YouTube the other day. And I came across a video where the EP booster, where the guy was using it. He's like, this is what I bring to the studio now. And it was a freaking Vox Pathfinder. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah. He's like, I just, I, I put it on this channel and he's like, when I want to hit it hard, I hit the EP booster, and it just comes to life. And he's placed the tone he's getting out. I'm like, what? Like, that's nuts. And the, and the amp has only got an 8.5-inch speaker, or an 8-inch speaker. Not an 8.5, 8-inch speaker. So it means that he's getting a bit bigger tone because the microphone's bigger. But not only that, like, he's punishing it. And that's how he's getting these tones. And they sound really, really good. And I'm like, that's weird. I never would expect it. So never underestimate a piece of gear. Specifically, things like Fender Champs. Um, I ran into a champ somewhere recently, and I was like, I was looking at it. I was like, hmm, hmm, I wonder how much they went for that. But I have no use for a champ. Hi there, so, champ. I, you yeah. know, I was, um, <laughs> how you doing over there? Um, I, I was uh, uh, always, like, like you were talking about, one of these people that it, it's been, I'll, Sometimes I'll look at a piece of gear, I'll go, why? But, you know, you get to where, if you if you do like, well, both of us have done in the past, you look at how an album is created. Um, they, they were talking about, okay, let's let's look at that song. I, is it Kid Charlemagne or is it... Kid uh, Charlemagne. Yeah, Larry Carlton, right? Kid yep. Charlemagne? Yeah, Larry Carlton on Steely Dan, probably his most famous solo ever on one of the most famous famous steely dan records ever uh-huh uh, right song. or asia i think they call it asia. no 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 no. oh no that um, is on that is on the royal scam the my royal friend scam. yeah <laughs> which um, which if you can only buy one steely dan record if yeah, you're a guitar player get that one <laughs> yeah it's got uh it's got that it's got uh don't take me alive it's got a lot of good yeah stuff don't on take it. me alive yeah um the, anyway there's a there's a thing about larry carlton coming in and doing was it peg or was it uh, yeah peg, it was Peg, I think, is the one Peg. you're going to talk about. Yeah, that's the story that. Yeah, and they've got a, they've got, um, it's a great video if you guys look it up. Um, they talk about Michael Michael McDonald and how he did his thing, and of course, um, yeah, he did the background vocals on Peg. If you didn't know already, yeah, I and mean, he did all, all yeah, the parts the is Michael womanly McDonald. background vocals. Yeah. Um, and uh, one of the things that because uh, they go, yeah, we're going to embarrass Michael. We're going to they isolate his voice. You know, anyway, um, the uh, they were talking about Larry Collin coming in. I don't think they mentioned him by name, 
but they do say that they, they showed a bunch of different musicians who come in to do it. And so Carlton walks in with an envelope filter. I thought it was a phaser. But a phaser, yeah, yeah phaser. Um, they didn't know what it was called. They called it an envelope filter. And they were like, yeah, we're... And, and they show the fil- they show the solo, like, um, you know, soloed, uh, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Um, and they, they, you know, punch everything else out and they just let you listen to the solo. And what's amazing is, and what, what gets forgotten a lot of times is those, those old boards were two preamps. Yeah. So he was plugged into his uh, uh, phaser, plugged into the, um, the board, and that's the sound you get. Which yeah, there are two solos that were like that in their career. Yeah. There was that one, reeling in the years. Yeah, um, yeah. Because they planned on reamping that, and yep. that's that's why I don't know if they actually ended up doing it. Um, but they planned it because he he was the Fender Champ guy for them. He'd play a three thirty five into a Fender Champ. Yep. And that was sort of his thing with that band. It was a three thirty five into a Fender Champ. Yep. Um, so, me was the 335 into the Fender Champ. And then he's called Mr. 335. So if you yeah, know, oh yeah. like, um, but if you're not a Larry Carlton fan, just stop listening. No. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just go <laughs> somewhere else. <laughs> no, seriously, seriously though, if you're not a Larry Carlton fan, go look the guy up. Like at very minimum, look him up on Wikipedia. Look at his, look at his list of people yeah. and then go listen to the real scam because yeah. that guy did pretty much every solo on that record. I think there were two or three that weren't him. Right. Um, and he is just a monstrous player. And I, I just thinking about like those sounds coming out of that little champ, like that is the classic example, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, that was unlikely, you know, like he shows up to the gig, he's got a phaser in one hand, a champ in the other and a three thirty five on his back. Yeah. You know, if you like, haven't, yeah. If you haven't sat down and listened to don't take me alive, yeah. sit down with it. Um, there's a lot of great songs, great music that that comes from that time frame. But you know, when you mentioned Terry Kath and you mentioned uh, uh, 25 or 64, and of course um, Saturday in the Park, and does anybody know? Just like got left by the wayside. Does cause... anybody really know what time it is and stuff? I'm like, that was that was my heyday of Chicago. I loved. Yeah. That music. I think when they, by, by 75 or 76, they were starting to make the turn towards pop music. When, when Carrie, when, when Terry Kath, um, tragically died. Yeah. Um, 78. We've talked, yeah, 78, I think. Eight, yeah, um, he, was, he just started recording his own album or he had just finished his own album. It, it had been written, right? Yeah. And I think a lot of people have argued and there's been some information that's come out that's basically said like he was planning to leave Chicago. And that's part of the reason why the band like collapsed right after he left. There was like a, like a six month period where they're like, we don't know what the hell we're going to do. Yeah. Um, and it was like, cause I think they realized like Terry wasn't going to stick around anyway. And it was because he was so disenfranchised with the direction of the band. And the funny thing was, instead of like take a long look at themselves and figure out how they honor his memory, they doubled down on the pop music. That's what and they did. That Hard for me to say I'm Terry sorry. Or... Yeah. That was not Terry. Terry Kath did not want that. 
Like that's 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 been the suggestion was that he was the hard rocker in the band. Yeah, and... don't get me wrong. I'm 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 a person who loves pop music, and in the time I loved the, the songs, but they that... just went sugary sweet. Yeah, like really was... bad, like really bad, really fast. It was like chewing molasses. Yeah, I'm trying um... to look up that last uh, that last album that I really really enjoyed. Um, and it, it's like, it's got all of them running across it or something. There's like a, there it is. Hot Streets, 1978. That was up. Yeah. So that would probably be the last one with Cat. That was the one. So Hot Streets had Alive Again. Oh my God. Um, if you haven't heard Alive Again, that's, that's a great song to sit down to. I mean, No Tell Lover, um, Take a Chance. Um, it, it, No Tell Lover is one of those songs that, you know, you listen to it, and and uh, it was, it was one of those songs where a lot of people were like, you know, they they'd heard the chorus, you know, "No Tell Lover," and they're like, oh, it's a cute little poppy song. Then you listen to it, and you go, wow, this this song is freaking groovy. And in 1978, think about what's going on in 1978 in pop music. What That's what disco. is it? Disco, right? Then "No Tell Lover" comes out, and uh, uh, "Alive Again." I mean, that's that flies right in the face of disco. I mean, it, yeah, a lot well, of people. You know, yeah, go ahead. Steely Dan, Steely Dan was like doing the same stuff at that time period too, which yeah. is like anti-disco and right. and and not anti-disco in the way that like Kiss was, but anti-disco in the way that like jazz was. Like, screw this, we're not going to do straight four-four beats and like um everything's gonna be a shuffle you know like that's basically like the, the steely dan mantra it's like how do we make as many shuffles fit on this record as possible <laughs> it's just uh it was just it's a wild like counterstatement i think it would be really interesting because i know like people write dissertations on this stuff it would be really interesting to write a dissertation on the reaction to the under i don't say the underground but like the subversive reaction to disco from popular music at that time because I don't, a lot of people consider disco popular music. I don't consider disco popular music, because at that time you had bands like Chicago and Steely well, Dan. I was just gonna and... say the, the the thing. A lot of people are like, oh yeah, all that we could hear was was disco. No, you had you had the two you just mentioned. We had Charlie Daniels kicking it up with. Yeah, um, I'm gonna say Charlie Daniels. Uh, like country music was huge. Um, including we had Southern like, Rock. You had you had California country going on at that time too. Like yep. you had uh, uh, Willie Nelson yeah, the, the was whole, was tearing it up. The whole Bakersfield um, sound um, mm -hmm. was exploding. Uh, let's see, um, Alan Parsons with uh, the stuff he was doing. Hello, although they do consider some people consider ELO to be disco. Yeah, you um, need to actually listen to D ELO. Don't yeah, just it, listen it, to "Don't Bring Me Down." Are, <laughs> say, maybe listen to some things that aren't on the radio. Yeah, yeah. "Don't Bring um, Me Down" was not the only album on Out of the Blue. I mean, that, that's the thing that uh, um, even Styx was not disco at that point. Styx was doing Grand Illusion. Styx was yeah. doing Pieces of Eight. Styx was doing the albums that everybody that loves Styx loves. Um, and at, in the middle of that, you still had juggernauts like the Rolling Stones, and yep. you had, you know, Led Zeppelin was still around until like 1980, I think. Yep. Um, so, yeah, Led Zeppelin. Act like, people act like disco had, had eclipsed everything, maybe in album sales, but there were still most of the people in the country were not only listening to disco. 
ACDC that was your party was, ACDC was putting out um, uh, in 1978 was uh, um, where we we got uh, you know some of the best ACDC albums that, that before Scott died. I mean, we yeah. had uh, you know yeah, 80... but they were but they were popular until his until his death. Like not in the same way because like it's like Back in Black and and Highway to Hell really opened that whole thing up. For yeah, them. it did to the masses. I mean, there was a, there were those of us who loved um, uh, you know Highway to Hell, but it, it really wasn't until Back in Black came out that people on the grander scale that album sells millions of copies a year to this today, day. Today, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's... and and oh, Pink Floyd had put out um, uh, Wish You Were Here. Right, um, right at this time, you know, I look back. We we talked about this before. I look back at the at the era of music that I grew up in, you know that that seventies and eighties music that I came up in, and I was I was totally blessed. The music is yeah, here still. Yeah, the stuff that I listen to. Yeah, the music <laughs> is here still, um, but. We were talking about who was the the person that we were talking about? Tash, Tosh. Um, I I don't have it pulled up on my thing. I don't think you don't have that that thing. Hold on, t- I, I got it. No, um, I do actually. I do. Tash Sultana. Tash Sultana. So Tash Sultana has released um, a uh, uh, or no they, Fender. They have an artist model from Fender now. Right. And they have this this artist model that is uh, first of all, if you haven't checked out Tash Sultana, if you like ska and and uh, what's the other reggae, uh, reggae, reggae, you're gonna like ta- and you like to use a looper pedal, you're gonna like ta- yeah. Tash Sultana. Very much a um, an artist that does uh, like the one person band thing, right? You know? That person it, that uh, they they do. Uh, Definitely um, uh, a solo thing. Um, they are from Australia, correct? I think so. Um, personally, uh, I, I sat, so I sat down, I listened to about an hour of music. And while it's not my thing, I was never a big ska reggae fan, I did find their uh, music uh, has a certain... Shows they play real instruments. They play. They play guitar. They play shaker. They play keys. They play. I mean, that that individual is Tash is very. I don't know if it's Tash or Tash, but anyway, it's, yeah, yeah it, it very uh, capable and and definitely deserving of the of the Fender model. Um, the the model is is about eleven hundred bucks. You can get it from. Uh, Guitar Center and from uh, um, what's the name of that place? Uh, Sweetwater. Uh, not like uh, I can't. I, I, I yeah. don't know why I could. You can get it from your Fender dealer. Yeah, <laughs> get it from your local Fender dealer. Um, yeah, from some Fender de- Fender dealer. Yeah. Any of them. <laughs> and and check it out. Check it out. Um, really cool. Really cool color scheme. So on and so forth. Uh, the the only reason I bring it up is because what I was trying to to get to is there are musicians out there doing cool things and definitely it's harder to find them they don't have the voice they did oh that's another one chuck mangione i mean as much as people (laughs) listen (laughs) 
Chuck Mangione was doing some cool stuff. He didn't just do that one song that everybody knows him for. Poor bastard. I mean, all anybody <laughs> can think of is da 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 It's like, oh, God, I think he's probably sitting there going, oh, jeez, what the fuck did I No, do? he's probably sitting there thinking, send me the mailbox checks. Like, yeah, I'm sure. Because that stuff is pl still playing in, in freaking... Uh, um, Anywhere. And, yeah. You'll hear it all the time. I mean... Uh, he's yeah, he's getting paid. Um, <laughs> he ain't selling perpetual licenses. Let's put it that way. No. Um, so back up. Yep. So Tash Sultana is is somebody who is non-binary. Um, and this is pointed out to one of our show listeners. We actually didn't know that until nope. we until we saw that. Which is, nope, we did, and, and I appreciate welcome, that. Welcome to twenty twenty, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, I um. I wanted to point out something. I've been I've been harping on on Fender behind the scenes with with Jim for a while because um, Fender made a pledge that at the last Nam show that they presented at, which was not Winter Nam, obviously it would have been Summer Nam. Um, that at the last Nam show, did we do Winter Nam this year? I think we did because it was in January. Um, it, we didn't cancel until after. They canceled the Summer Nam, and then they're right. going to can they cancel Winter Nam. Right. So now it's Summer Nam next year, which is probably going to turn into Maybe. yeah Winter, Winter Nam. Nam. Yeah, twenty twenty two, um, or twenty twenty, yeah, twenty twenty one, yeah, or no, it'll be twenty twenty two. It'll be cause well it'll be by that time, yeah. yeah. Whatever. <laughs> okay, but my point is, they made a pledge that they would have more women artists with signature guitars in twenty in that last Nam show than any other company. And that they would announce them at the show. And it didn't happen. They said that. And it didn't happen. And not a person raised a middle finger to them or anything about that. And I, I, I for one, am actually kind of ticked off. Because, number one, you know, everyone can tell at this point. If you haven't seen the Fender whatever, t whatever 2, Pro Model 2 or whatever ads... They are marketing that guitar more to women than they are men, which I'm fine with, right? I have no problem with this. In fact, I think that's actually a great thing. But at least don't don't patronize them. Right. Like if you're gonna if you're gonna sell to women, then <laughs> get some actual women players who are worth a damn. You know, find Gretchen men, tell her to get the hell off of whoever she's with. I think she's with Ernie Ball Music Man. I don't think that's gonna happen. But um because <laughs> I'm gonna be real. I don't think Fender puts out that quality of a guitar, um, but but find some people like her, or or even uh, who's the other one? The one that just did the the solo record. Her her our boyfriend's a drummer, uh, Nita Strauss, and get some of those people to play your stuff, and make them artists and release artist models from them. That is what you need to do if you want to strengthen women in this in this industry. You are going to need to prop them up. Buy a record label. And make a bunch of female artists, like, rich, and get them in front of people and get people who actually play instruments in front of people rather than letting people like Katy Perry, who I watched in the Disney holiday special, dress up like a Christmas tree and actually, like, do something with their talent. Like, it's ridiculous. I get so mad at it. This like, is... I, I know I've met talented female inst or musicians, instrumentalists. Like, I have met many and I'm like, why in the hell are we still, like, listening to the same dudes who haven't done anything relevant 
in like last 15 years. Um, and it's just, it's a repeat thing over and over. I'm like, I just want talent. We need to get, we need to infuse music back in people's lives. So one of the ways we do that is we look for new talent. And the easiest way to do that is stop looking at gender bias as an issue here. Don't, I don't care if this person's non-binary. Actually, I'm a little frustrated at that because they don't fit into the women category either. Nope. So here we go. This is not a female signature guitar, which makes it even worse. And that's actually what I wanted to bring up. Was like, or it makes it, oh, it makes it even worse if they think it is. But that that's beside the point. That, it's not even worse or better. It's just the more of the same, right? Like this right. is a one off, right. and they need to to put their money where their mouth is. If they're going to make promises like that, they well, need to back them up. Right, here's here's the thing. So we know that record companies aren't going to do it anymore, right? And it's expensive, because right. but but here's the thing. It doesn't it. Why can't guitar manufacturers who are wallowing, Gibson, Fender, Ibanez, Music Man, who are wallowing in um, uh, their, their, you know, what are we going to do different? How are we going to bring more people in? Your idea. Support your artist. Start your own label. Get an artist. Gibson label. Fender label. Ibanez label, Music Man label. I honestly think if Fender and Gibson did that, if they started to produce artists themselves, because they got talent internal, right? Like, they could do right. that. They, and not only do they have that, they have money. Fender and Gibson are heavily vested companies. And right now, they're doing very, very well. This might be an avenue for them to save themselves if Guitar Center continues to downward spiral. That's like, right. That, that is the thing that I'm most concerned about with those companies. Well, and if they, they have started... They, they have a vehicle. They have a vehicle. Every... That's a, that's the thing that ticks me off. Okay, they have a vehicle. They what? I don't know what happened in the in the tooth early or the mid to um, 2000s to 2010. There was a time when somebody was putting artists in guitar centers across the country, and they were going from one to the next, and they were doing shows and i'm sure it wasn't free to get in okay so and even if it was it was very small and then they had a show a local show but somebody was putting those artists on the road into each store now here's what i'm getting at here's what i here's think do you remember in the 80s what what record label launched um the the talents of a lot of the great guitar players their name escapes me but shrapnel um... Shrapnel, yeah. Shrapnel Records, right? Yeah. And wasn't that owned? Was that the one that was owned? I don't remember. One of them was owned by whatever. Yeah, and there was another one owned by Vi. Vi had its own label. Well, he had Favored Nations. Favored Nations. I think Favored Nations is still in. I think they still do it. Existence. Yeah. My point is, those specialty labels, Gibson doesn't have to print ten bazillion records. Just print enough. To put somebody on the road. Fender doesn't have to print a bazillion records to do the same thing. Just print enough stuff to put them on the road. Put some money behind some people. Whatever happened to those, remember those, um, the, the blues uh, uh, competitions? Wasn't it? Wasn't it Guitar Center or something that had the... Yeah, they had all kind of the King of the Blues competition and they've had yeah, all kinds of stuff like that. But But that's my point, like... What we happened? Need places, we need more places to play, number one. 
if you want to sell instruments, you're going to have to provide musicians a place to play. Yeah. Number two is it isn't about necessarily a place to play so much as like providing opportunities for artists who are excellent musicians, not just pop song people like Katy Perry, but artists right. who are excellent musicians to have a place where they can they can go for shelter and make money for both of you. Like, that's what gets me. If you're an AR rep, you're like, man, making records is cheap now. Like, it doesn't cost anything. No. We can just build a studio out back and then, you know, spend a million dollars building a studio. And then we'll bring in, you know, we'll bring in these four AR people and they'll just become our artists. And, like, we'll use them to do promotional material, but we'll also use them as a vehicle to generate revenue by by recording music. Like, who would have thought that you could have this mutually exclusive thing? Let the artists do their thing. You don't yeah. even have to get involved in what they're doing. Just let them do their thing. Maybe that's because why they're looking at it that way. It's like they're they're worried about the liability of it. Like what if yeah. the artist says something that I don't agree with? Tough. Welcome to TV. I mean, look at The Simpsons, how much they made fun of Fox. Or or uh, David oh, Letterman, how much he made fun of CBS. Yeah. I mean, he just hated CBS. Yeah. Um, and, and so what? He still sold. He still, you know, had great ratings, and in this case, they would still sell a ton of instruments for you. So, oh, yeah. if I were if I were Fender, I would be like, I'd be looking at it a little bit hard. Now, maybe there's a reason that Fender doesn't want to do this. Maybe there's a reason Gibson doesn't want to do this, and that is because they already have deals with AR people on the back end somewhere to provide people with with equipment should they get signed by that label, and this would infringe on that because now there's a conflict of interest. Um. But if I were if I were Fender Gibson, last thing I'd want to be doing is putting my eggs in the in the uh, major label basket these days. That yeah. is that is a mistake. I nope. I honestly don't see the major label surviving another twenty years. Not nope. not the current not the current state. Like the major labels that are surviving now are owned by media conglomerates. That's right. So like Dis Disney is a major label. But here's you know, okay. Like, so here's the thing. Let me let me let me back things up. So I sit and I watch a lot of independent musicians and artists. Of all kinds, uh, one of the one of the um, uh, artists I watch is a is a comic book artist. Just released independently, released a comic book. Now you're thinking, so what, right? That's this a big artist, deal. This artist released a comic book, and in a two hour presentation, okay, somebody, most people outside the comic book industry have never heard of, ever, and even within the comic book industry. Only within certain, you know, folds, four hundred fifty thousand dollars in two hours. Yeah. Now look, a place like Gibson. Now that they're doing the Gibson TV thing, which by the way, I think they're doing. They if they started off on the right foot, and and in the beginning when they were doing the standards and the other things, they had they had some artists we never heard of. Come on, you got the Gibson TV thing. Yes, bring us Joe Bonamassa, then bring us. Somebody we've never heard of. Show us someone that's worth hearing. And don't make it because, because they fit some narrative or because they fit some thing. They're pretty or they're they're handsome or they've got it. No. Show me someone who has got a cult. Show me Mrs. Smith's record label. Where's, yeah. where's Ibanez backing Mrs. Smith, right? Right. That that's an individual who should be on a, 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 a record label and and going out. I don't know if if they are or not, but I'm just saying. Well, so, so 
I'm looking at favored nations, yep. right? And this is exactly what we're talking about, right? So like Matthias Eklund is on there, yep. Pac Masumoto, Tony McAlpine, the Yardbirds, Steve Lukather, Steve Vai, um, Dave Wiener. I'm just I'm just giving you the names that I recognize. Uh, Andy Timmons, uh, Greg Koch, yeah, Billy she- Billy Sheehan, Mike Keneally, yeah, uh, Neil Citrin. Sean McKee, Stanley Jordan, Neil Schoen, Carlton and Luke Leather. So some of these are like groupings where they've released records under under Favorite Nations. Uh, Johnny A, Eric Stinas, um, Peter Huttlinger, Terry Bozio, uh, Johnny Hilland, yep. um, just Belducci, Greg Bissonette, Vernon Reed, Stu Ham, Frank yep. Gambali. Like they still have a, an incredible roster of musicians. But here's but here's what's funny about this roster of musicians. These people that are on this label with the names that I just mentioned are all about talent. Like these people don't necessarily, you don't think of like do ham as being the great songwriter, right? right? This is for, this is for musicians to enjoy. You don't, and, you don't think of Steve Lukather as being a handsome man. Right. And that's what <laughs> my point is. We, we've lost that. The record labels don't care about that anymore. The major labels don't. So if you really want to see a music community thrive, we need to get people to stop listening to Skrillex and put right. them in front of stuff like this. I'm not saying Skrillex is the enemy. No. That's not what I'm saying. No. What I'm saying is we need to provide an avenue for art, for actual artists, for people who really have a skill and a talent with an actual honest dyed-in-the-wool instrument well, to have a place, a, a, a safe harbor right. where they can record music that's actually good music Yep. in the sense that it fits all the same things that pop music does too, but just do it with actual instruments and talent and ability and showcase these people as part of your brand. Right. Fender records. Look at at the Gibson records. Let's look at YouTube for just a minute, which is, which is by the way, a fantastic place to find talent. Let's look at it for just a minute and look outside of the artist and look at the Rick Beatos of the world. Look at there's a, there's a British guy that does record like a pro. I know you're talking about. Yeah. He's good too. I, Um, I know you're talking about. In other words, there's a lot of these folks that are sitting there that that could do these one-off records. I'm not saying they will or they won't or what they would charge. I don't know. But I know this. There's a lot of really talented um, record um, producers out there. Rick Beato has a gold record for a reason. I mean, the guy, um, you know, he's talented in a lot of ways. And one of them is his ability to put a record together. And mm-hmm. like you said, you know, so I'm I'm watching the TV shows explode. That are the talents coming like this. Who gives two flying rats asses about the masked singer for the love of God? Can we get forty minutes? And if we can't, if if national television, who it it's dying. It's a dying entity anyway. Okay. Do you know Get what these, these guys? We can launch them on YouTube. There should be. I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm spitballing okay. here. Yeah, because these companies are like, uh, it's like what happened with punk rock music in the seventies. Yeah, when it was running around, and I've heard it described in Guitar World as running around like mice under <sighs> the feet of giant dinosaurs. Yes. And it was like they were just able to be more nimble and make better decisions yes. and do things in a grassroots way that dinosaurs could never accomplish. 
And like, that's what we're watching right now, where independent artists are out thinking the companies that have money that could actually be helping them that's and right. being mutually beneficial. That's like having right. not a parasitic relationship, which is what we were dealing with with major labels for the last 50 years. That's right. But have a mutually beneficial relationship. Yep. Like that's where I'm looking at the situation. I'm going that, that this industry is totally screwed up right now. Yeah. Like yeah, don't, nobody knows how to be profitable. And don't there's make, a clear reason why. Right. Don't make the artist any, any um, promises beyond today, beyond this YouTube stream, beyond the yeah. next YouTube stream. It's, it's much like being an alcoholic and going one day at a time. I mean, the fact is that that's how a lot of these people, how do you think Tash uh, got popular? How did, you know, a lot of these musicians get popular? I, I was listening to Satriani tell his story. He sold records out of the back of his car. Yeah, a lot of people did that. I mean... And we you can't sell records now. There's no physical media. Do you know how hard it is to get somebody to buy your merch? Yeah. You know, like, it's impossible now. Okay, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take another side of that. True fans want something physical. And I think the t-shirt hoodie hat thing is dying. And I think the record album as just a thing to go, it's like a poster. I got a record album. It's my I favorite mean, band. I, I mean, I, I, I tend to agree with you, but knowing some of the local acts and what they're making on merch, even when they're like pretty well known, they, they can't even sell a CD at their show. Nobody has a CD player. Like, and it, in some cases they're doing cassette tapes. Yep. Which it's like, this is a physical thing you can take home. It's cheap, you know, yep. and it's kind of a, like a vintage hipster thing, yep. you know. Well, um, let's face it. You can do a CD for the price of a sticker. And so, honestly, nowadays, they're, they're super yeah. cheap, right? I think you can produce a CD for, what, 25 cents? Um, so, depending on your volume. Um, and so, uh, the the truth of the matter is, Record albums are more expensive. They're harder to they're harder to do. But there's a place in in uh, uh, Nashville. You know what they do? They they have the 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 people come in. They do a show. Right. And then they press the show as a record, and then you sell the record on the way out. So you can buy the record. You can buy a ticket to buy the record, so that you can get the record mailed to you wherever you go. And yeah. So you have the record that. That was something I did at a Kiss concert. Kiss actually did that years ago. Yeah, so did Peter Gabriel. Like yeah. I have this, I have this show that I went to. Yep. Um, and, and I'm just saying that that this is not a new thing. Is all I'm saying. You've you've seen it. I've seen it. Um, <clears throat> uh, there are so many things you can do if you can create a fan. I was I was watching a YouTube channel. Okay, this is a silly one, but it had nothing to do with music. But I was watching a YouTube channel called uh, uh, Victoria Tries. I think it's Victoria tries, and it's it's this woman who tries different stuff, like from the the five and below, and from okay. Yeah, yeah, and, I, I I'm familiar. Yeah, and so I watched her channel, and I was so enamored and, and laughing so hard at this gal that I bought um one of her merch. I went and I bought a, a um a face mask that says fungalitis, and, and so. I can't wait for it to come in. I'll, I'll wear it opening next week. It's just a funny thing. I was like, you know what? I'll just, I, I'm going to look at her, at her merch store and I'm going to buy something. And so, and the, and the reason I do that, and I, I know I'm not alone. I, please tell me I'm not alone. 
Just like I ordered the new Iron Maiden album, by the way. Uh, Legacy of the Beast. Uh, yeah. Live in Mexico. It's coming this week, I hope. Anyway. I saw um, the tour, so. Yeah. I didn't. I should have. I didn't <laughs> think we were going to wind up in this. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, but anyway, uh, uh, I, I was watching, uh, and the way I found out about it wasn't because some record company did a big push. It was a bunch of emails. In my feed comes Bruce Dickinson um, unboxing Legacy of the Beast. I'm like, don't I have Legacy of the Beast? I'm thinking, of, I, I'm like, well, I'll watch Bruce Dickinson. I watch Bruce Dickinson, and he's unboxing the brand new CD set. He's like, yeah. well, you can get this one. And then he goes, oh, what's this? And he opens the next one and he goes, oh, it's got this in it. And I go, where the hell do I get that? <laughs> yeah. And I yeah. ordered it. So I got the little booklet with the stuff. Look, I've got the ACDC album thing. I, I got all the songs MP3 wise. I just wanted a box that lights up. But, but I also I want to support my band. But I think a lot of people nowadays don't want to buy physical media music. It is clutter, especially in the younger crowd. Like, for, for my my audience is different than yours. Like, I'm yes. looking for the people that are between 18 and 18 and 30. Yep. You know, like, that's kind of the, my target audience. Maybe a little bit older, maybe 18 and 40, right? And there's a very small group of those people that even remembers owning compact discs. So for me, or even, like, any physical recorded media... And for me to press a record, that's just not feasible. You know, like, I, it's not financially feasible. So I thought about doing download cards. I thought about thumb drives. Like, that would be an option. And I actually, honestly, I don't want to sell them. Like, the, I want to start giving them away. Like, that's the way I'm looking at it. It's like, I want you to have something so the next time you see me on a bill somewhere, you remember, that's I... that guy. Um, and that that's kind of the way I'm thinking about that that logical approach to it. Um, I do have music on iTunes, but it's just like I don't see unless you have major label backing anymore or any sort of like a minor label or an independent label like is what they're really called um, an independent label backing to give you like a little bit of promo money for you to be able to make that a reality. Why? Well, um, yeah, I, I agree with you there. I think that. OK, so what I'm seeing um, and of course I'm in a microcosm is I'm starting to see more people um, and I can I can prove it in in one piece of merchandise that's Funko Pops. Yeah. Um, Funko Pop just launched they're so popular they just launched a store where you can buy yourself that's Funko Pop. Okay. And so I think when we when we come out of this thing that we're in now, um, I think we're going to see there. There's a there's a certain uh, what do you call it nostalgia, and and the nostalgia um, before we we were nostalgic for the sound. I think we're becoming nostalgic. For the experience, I hope so. That's what I hope I'm so. I I think. So you heard about what, what Warner Brothers did this week, right? So they announced Friday that all of their film releases next year will not be just in theaters; they will be available online on HBO Max. Uh, Disney, of course, is fuming mad 
um, because they are getting called on the carpet for the release of Mulan. And now that Disney, or that Warner Brothers is doing this, they're sitting there going, what are we going to do? Because our model was to sell them. And they're saying, we just want subscribers. We don't care if we sell it because there's more money in subscription. Wonder Woman hits um, the Wonder Woman hits on what is it Christmas Day? Um, yeah. Uh, HBO Max. Uh, this is important. This is very important. This model. This is the death of movie theaters. This is what this is. Is possibly the death of movie theaters. So will there be? Will there be when when this all ends a nostalgia to go back into movie theaters? I think so. I think there will still be art houses. But I think for the most part, like you're going to see a drastic reduction in movie theaters. And I think it's just going to happen because people are fed up with the prices. It was really one of those things where if I and and it's related to the music industry. So just wait a minute, because I'm going to I'm going to tie it all together. If I'm paying 12 bucks to go to a movie, non matinee, right, like which most people still don't go during the matinee. If you've ever been to a matinee showing lately, they're empty, Uh, not during COVID, but pre COVID Um, they're empty. And so what does that tell you? People are still willing to pay 12 or 13 bucks to go see the first run movie and then 50 bucks for popcorn and, and a Coke, you know? And, um, yeah. and, and it's not even good stuff. Like, so here's the, here's the point. This is the point I'm trying to make. If a movie is worth 12 bucks plus $50 worth of concessions per person, Right, you take your whole family. You're at a hundred dollars. You're just gonna spend a hundred dollars. It's yep. gonna happen. Yep. Um, when you when you look at it that way, and then you say I can spend a hundred bucks and take the whole family to a concert, like, which would you rather do? Huh. Everybody can go see the movie, but the concert's exclusive to your area. That's right. It's an exclusive and experience, and it's live and it's done different every single night. That's that's exactly what I was gonna say. I wanted to get right to that point. And you, and you just made it. That night will be different from the next night. If, mm-hmm. if they are truly artists and not just... not. And please don't think I'm taking away from a Katy Perry concert. Please don't think I'm taking away from that. I'm just saying that if it's truly an expressive form of in-the-moment music... That's exactly why I'm asking Fender and Gibson to become a label themselves. Because... To promote these people. That's right. Because when we come out of this... That will be, I can see a re-rise, is there such a thing, um, a, a, a regeneration of the, of the larger club music scene, of the, of the um, ability for musicians to tour. If, if let's say you took... Um, uh, small the, bars will die. A lot of small bars will die, but the bigger and medium-sized venues will probably flourish. Yeah. Because they don't operate when there's no – the places that op, don't operate when there's no one in them, yep. like, is is another thing. Right. But the places that require food and drink purchases and that's how they make their money, that's that's a problem. Now, here's the converse of this. Warner Brothers is not dumb, right? So they're looking at the situation. They're going, we know we're not going to be able to release these films next year. We have to make them profitable somehow because that's we're right. never going to be able to get our schedule back on track. Yep. So they're looking at the situation this way. And that is, we have X amount of months to get subscribers into HBO Now, HBO Max, whatever it's called, HBO Max, um, so that we can we can generate as much revenue as we can off of digital purchases and streaming. They know that digital streaming has basically killed 
the piracy market. And releasing movies same day digital is going to kill the piracy market even further. And I think that Warner Brothers is looking at that situation and they're saying it is more lucrative for us to do this digitally than it is in theaters. And so the, the converse of this, of course, is that they know that they figure in 2021 and probably on into 2022, people are still going to be afraid to congregate and that there is going to be lasting mental health impact, not because the virus is circulating, but because they know that they could get infected with something else. And this is this is kind of like the Cold War where people were, were building their bomb shelters and stuff in secret. Um, and they know that's going to have an impact on the industry. And they're a little terrified that this could belly them up. And they're being smart. They're actually building up, you know, uh, uh, a, how do you say? Um, they're, they're sandbagging because they realize the flood's coming. And everybody else in the industry is like, you're, you're drilling the hole in the wall. You're going to let all the water through. And they're going, yeah, but we're going to sandbag it up because we're going to protect ourselves. That's right. Um, so that's why I'm that's why I'm laughing at this whole situation because I said when I saw that, of course, my wife was like I'm thrilled to death. And I am too because I love, I love Warner Brothers stuff. Um, I was looking at it and I go, what does this mean for my industry? And, and there was two – there was the, the two big indicators and one of them was very scary and one of them was very positive which is that we could see a resurgence in live entertainment. I think this this country is so split right now and divided on every single issue that I think 50% of the country will be afraid and 50% of the country will be itching to go. And I think I think that's that's going to have an interesting effect on things and I can't predict what it is, but I hope for the best cuz we really need a change in art. Um I'm an advocate for the arts in this country and I'll be honest with you. Like I'm totally done with TV. There's like three or four shows I watched total. Um, I don't, I haven't had, I don't even have regular local TV service. I watch everything streaming now. And to the point where most of Copocalypse, I've been sitting in front of my TV, watching a, watching a um, two idiots do the modern equivalent of Jackass uh, called Unis Honest which you cannot find, do not go look for it because it has been deleted. But these guys created a channel back in November last year and they did one video per day of silly stunts and they deleted it in November and it was a big art thing. And it was oh, yeah. like, it was yeah. all about the, the, you know, the reflection on, of, of life and death and this sort of thing. Um, but it was all just silly stunts. And the point is that, that I spent more time watching cable access, which that's what YouTube is. It's, yeah. it's yeah. public access TV than I did watching anything that's being put out by a major company. Um, you know, uh, their videos were about 20 minutes long and I watched 365 of them. Um, and then I watched their, their eight hour finale or their 12 hour finale from start to finish. I did not leave my seat. Um, so just put that into perspective. Like now is the time for independent artists it is, it is now that time. Content creators are independent artists. They're doing different things, usually in a visual media. And we are in a situation where it's time for musicians to start doing the same things. Um, we cannot rely on major labels and we cannot rely on corporate entities to back our industry anymore. And in order for talent to prosper and for order for good songs to be written, we need to really kind of step up to the plate and take control of these things ourselves. And that might mean forming guilds and collectives so that you know, uh, five or six local bands can work together to promote each other 
Um, maybe you don't make the spot, but you recommend somebody else who does um, on on whatever touring gig. Like that's what it's going to take to keep music alive for us. I think so, and I think it's important. I really do. I think it's important to keep to keep things going. Um, we're we're going to lose a lot if we don't. Yeah, uh, I mean, I mean, this isn't all because of COVID. Like I'm seeing the situation at hand because. So, like, when I started the Guitar Resource Collective, which actually kind of, you know, Jim had another group going, and we kind of spun the show off of those two groups. Um, when I started that group, my whole intention was to discuss stuff like this. The idea that we really need to be a collective. Like, we need to support one another. Because right yeah. now, we have been, we've been walked on for 50 years. Like, people don't seem to realize that the music industry was parasitic. And many people who were able to navigate it were very successful, but they were successful because they were feeding off the blood of the industry. Yep. And now we're sitting in a situation where there is no industry. And I, I'm, I'm not an alarmist. I can say that by looking at what's going on. The same sounds that were on the radio 20 years ago when I graduated high school, I'm sure Britney Spears had a record out, is the same crap I hear from other artists today. Nothing has changed. Nothing, not in 20, let's see, I, well, I didn't graduate 20 years ago. I graduated in 2003, so I graduated 17 years ago. In 17 years, nothing has changed. Nothing. Let's nope. make that very, very clear. I, I, can, I can't say that enough. Even the sound of rock and roll hasn't changed much. Um, bands like Rival Sons, I mean, they're not that far removed from Black Keys and black keys isn't that far removed from you know the white stripes and nope. i know i'm gonna get crucified for saying that but that's that's a reality like they're kind of gritty rock bands um and we're still doing the same things today which which should if you should be begging yourself the question no musical cycle has lasted this long none and that's because nobody at the top knows what to do and the major labels are all scrambling well um, there's nothing new Right. There's I mean, they're not new. even. It's not that there's nothing new. They're not willing to take a chance. Well, because because repeating is easier. It's repeating easier. What's been done. It's, it's easier, and they're also in damage control mode. Yeah. And they're in damage control mode because they got they they were late to the game on digital, and Apple and Google and all the other companies that have done digital Napster and all the other companies that have done digital distribution for them have taken the money. And so now the recording companies, which are, I believe there are only three left of the major recording houses of which there was at one point, like seven or or 11. Um, there's only like three left and they're all owned by major media conglomerates like Disney, yep. Disney, Warner brothers and Fox, which I, I don't think is Fox. It's, it's CBS, I think, or something like that own the three major recording companies or a, a significant portion of them. Right. Um, which should tell you there's something wrong here. Like they're not, they're not industry owned anymore. They're not privately owned. They're owned by conglomerates. Yeah. And that's, and that's because media can't survive without it. Like they, they, they screwed themselves with digital. And by the way, that whole thing with Warner brothers, they're being forward thinking. Disney, Disney had this grand idea. We're going to put all our content in our streaming service. They haven't done that. Not all of the content is up on their streaming service, number one. No. Um, but they had this grand idea. We have a property that's worth a ton of money, and we can sell it, sell it and distribute it digitally. The problem is they're 20 years too late. 
Netflix has been doing this for almost 20 years. And other companies have been doing it for almost 20 years. And the film industry didn't want them to. They were pissed. They tried to stay out of it. They fought like hell to keep that from happening because they were so afraid of being pirated and having their property infringed upon so that they would lose their product. They forgot to sell their product. And so now they're all sitting there trying to play catch up and they're all screwed, which is why I'm sitting here telling people they're only going to play it safe from here on out. So if you want to take a risk and you want to make music that could potentially make you rich, not just because it's going to make you rich, but because it's art and because you have something to say and it's important, then do it. Don't wait for a label. Exactly. And, and there's no time, no better time. We are truly in a world where the punk scene is stronger than, yeah. the, than the big scene. Because nothing, and I do mean nothing, can stop your YouTube channel, your Twitter feed, your, um, you know, your Facebook followers from following you. Nothing. And that is the beauty of what we've got looking us right in the face. If you have talent and you have music that you can show, I mean, do it. Just do it. And I think that that brings us to a good time to say goodnight. Jazz hands. No, jazz hands. And then also, uh, I've been David. I've been Jim. And tonight we were practical guitarists with jazz hands. With jazz hands. <laughs>